you can stand, please. And we'll be looking at this morning's scripture reading in Matthew 11, 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds that, of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John that you, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You may be seated. Good morning. It is truly a blessing to be able to be here with this church. There is no congregation that I would rather worship with or lead in worship on a Lord's Day, on a beautiful single digits day in February in Minnesota. It's one of the, I guess I don't know if I'd call it a joy or just a part of the, what goes along with the responsibility of the pastor that you when you preach to the congregation that you know that you're involved with in their lives, you, you can actually look out and see faces and understand and know trials that people are going through. You can understand those things that are, might cause them to struggle, those things that are causing them to fear, maybe those things that are causing them to doubt. And the place is a unique burden and opportunity on a preacher to try to speak out and to reach into the lives of this congregation to bring to bear the, the wonder of the gospel, the power of Christ, and to ask God's Spirit to move in our midst, to, to do a work among us, this, this ordinary service of worship to our God where very unordinary things happen day after day, as, as God brings life, as he brings change, as he grows and shapes and changes us for his glory, as he expands his kingdom. Well, I'd ask that you would join me in prayer uh, as we approach our text this morning. Father, we do come here to worship. And we are a people that are going through many different kinds of trials that are facing many different hard circumstances. We have much reason to rejoice that we have reason to be concerned, reason to be weary and tired. And by the standard of the world, we have reason to feel crushed and defeated. Yet, Father, I am so very thankful that we don't have to see things through the eyes of the world, but we can see through the lens of the gospel and know that every victory is ours in Christ. Every trial, every suffering, every heartache, 
a tool in the hands of our loving Father to bring about our good, to bring about his glory. Father, help us not to be distracted by the, the worries of this world, not to be distracted even by those things that are real and meaningful, but let our hearts be turned towards you in worship. Let our ears be open to hear your word. May we be expectant of the movement of your spirit to convict us of sin, to grant us the sweetness of union with our God when we repent of our sin and turn in faith. And to make us like Christ, he who is greatest and chiefest in our minds and our hearts. We come expecting great things because our God is great and he does not do anything insignificant. Pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, as we begin our text this morning, uh, we get an indication that we are moving on to a new section of teaching. Moving on to something that's not directly tied or related to the passage we were at before. Remember, we have had an extended series of teaching and narratives that were all centered around Christ sending out his disciples, of, of Christ seeing the, the sad state of the people in Israel. They were, they were lost and wandering. They were prey for the wolves who should have been their shepherds. That he was sending out his disciples to go and carry the news of the kingdom to them. And he warned them, about what they would face as they went out with that proclamation. But here we see that there is a change or a shift. I read in verse 1, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So when you're reading through Scripture, when you're studying your Bibles at home, look out for that kind of language. It often serves as a, as a form of a segue from, from one section to another, especially when we remember that the gospel authors were not intending to convey each event in the gospel in chronological order as it happened. They actually had intention. They, they grouped things together for a purpose. So Matthew had an intention about how he grouped things together, what, what teachings, what narratives he grouped together, what he was trying to teach his audience. So look out for this kind of language to let us know, okay, we're, we're shifting into something else. Well, some of you may have noticed, if you were reading through where we had been to where we're at now, that Matthew neither records the disciples going out nor the report that they brought when they came back to Christ. This whole section of the previous section kind of started with that, that, that Jesus, as I said, he had, he had compassion on the people. He called his disciples. He commissioned his disciples for the evangelistic ministry to go out to the lost and the cities of Israel. And yet here we just, we just move on. 
And we don't actually, Matthew doesn't bring us back to that. We don't actually see them going out. We don't see them coming back. Luke actually records both their going out and coming back. That they went through all the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Very much continuing on with the ministry of Christ. And then Luke also recorded when they returned, they told him all that they had done. Well, of course, Matthew is not ignorant of the fact that the disciples did go out and did preach as Christ had sent them to do in the villages, in the towns, in the region. But he leaves that part out for a reason. Those events were simply not as important to the message of the kingdom that, was, that Matthew was laboring so diligently to convey to his audience. And I also think that Matthew didn't focus on that aspect, didn't actually go into the disciples going or coming back. Because while he did talk, Jesus did talk about sending them out and gave a large section of teaching to the warnings of what the disciples would face when they did go out, this initial um, missional journey of the disciples was not ultimately where they would face all that they had been warned about. All those warnings, the, the being delivered over to kings and governors, being delivered over to death, those were things that would take place later, after Christ had ascended to the Father and to his throne. And so it is in this, this new setting that we see the disciples of John once again come to Jesus. Read in verses 2 and 3. Now, the, now when John had heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? If you recall, Though Jesus' public ministry began by his interaction with John, began as he was baptized by John, and as he, in essence, picked up the mantle of the message of John and carried it out as the main attraction then became the headliner of the show, the subsequent interactions between John's disciples and the disciples of Jesus were not exactly harmonious. Remember back in Matthew 9, John's dis disciples approach Jesus to be able to, to question him as, as though they dare to rebuke the Messiah because his disciples weren't as pious as they were. They were apparently lax in their concerns about religious piety. John's disciples even joined up with the disciples of the Pharisees when the Pharisees were calling out Jesus and his disciples because of the company they kept, because of whose homes they would go into and who they would feast and drink with, the tax collectors and sinners. Well, this time, when we once again see John's disciples engaging with Jesus, it is to ask him a question that they were given from John. Because at this time, John was in prison, as was recorded in Matthew 4.12. And as we'll find out later on in Matthew 14.3-5, John was in prison because he had been calling out sin. Because he had been zealous for the truth, zealous against wickedness. And even had gone to Herod the Tetrarch, the, the magistrate in the land, and told him that he was in sin because he had his brother's wife 
And that was not acceptable. That was abomination. As John sat in prison, and for a lengthy period of time, John wasn't executed because he had been so popular among the people that Herod was afraid to simply kill him. He wanted to. Yet he was afraid of the people. So John sat in prison, and and because Herod was also kind of intrigued by this figure who held so much sway among the people, John had a certain amount of freedom, as was common when people are imprisoned that day, that the, the person imprisoning somebody wasn't the one typically who cared for their needs. You didn't eat because the prison gave you three square meals a day. That's not how prison used to work. You were thrown into a dungeon, you're thrown into a cell, or you were locked away in some room. And unless you had people that would bring you food, that would come and minister to you, you would starve. So John had his disciples that would come to him, that would minister to him while he was in prison. And they told him, Everything that they had seen and heard from Jesus. And we can be sure that John's disciples would have shared with John the concerns they had that they shared with the disciples of the Pharisees. That this Jesus, this one whom John had proclaimed to be the Messiah, was a friend and a frequent guest of sinners and tax collectors. His disciples appeared to be rather lazy in their religion. Well, many key figures in the history of the church believed that through all of this, John was stalwart in his faith. That John only sent his disciples to Jesus because he was concerned that their faith might be weak. That he wanted his disciples to go to Christ and hear things from Christ so that after John was no longer on the scene, his disciples might be strengthened and believe. Calvin went so far as to say that it was exceedingly foolish to even entertain the idea that John was not at this time completely convinced of who Jesus was and what his arrival meant. Yet, as careful as I want to be, when disagreeing with such godly and learned men, I just don't think we can justify that interpretation by this text. While I am sympathetic to the desire to try and shield God's chosen chosen messenger to be the herald for the Messiah, to proclaim the arrival of God on this earth, The text just seems to make it clear that after hearing the reports of his disciples, John needed confirmation. John needed to be reassured of what he had once so boldly proclaimed. Specifically that Jesus was indeed the greater one who was to come after him. While some might feel that such doubts from such an important person in redemptive history would be a blemish on the gospel, I would argue that this momentary stumbling of John would put him in the good company with many other fathers of the faith, such as Abraham, Isaac, Moses, David, and Peter. 
Well, before we look more into why John was doubting at this point in his life, let's remind ourselves of the confidence that John should have had that he once shown in Jesus as the Messiah. What should John have known at this point beyond any shadow of a doubt? Well, if you remember back, John's early ministry, he confessed openly that he was not the Christ. He had come with such, with, with such authority in his speech that he garnered so much attention from the people that he had to tell them, no, I am not the one that we are waiting for. He was simply a messenger to go out ahead and prepare the way. There was somebody greater than him who was going to follow. In fact, somebody whose sandals, John said, he was not even worthy to stoop down and tie. John said that he came to baptize with water for repentance a part of that promise of his father to turn the hearts of, of men back to God, the hearts of sons to their fathers. Yet one who would come later would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. When Jesus went to John to be baptized in Matthew 3, 13 through 17, John understood that he, not Jesus, was the one that had need to be baptized, was the one that needed to repent of sin. He only agreed to baptize Jesus after Jesus assured him that it was necessary for all righteousness because Christ had to come and identify with his people in this way. And at, John's, uh, at Jesus' baptism, John received all the affirmation he ever should have needed about just who Jesus was. If you want to turn with me to John chapter 1, Verses 29 through 34. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. In chapter 1. We'll start in verse 29. The next day he, speaking of John, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me, because he was before me. Remember, Jesus was the younger cousin of John. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. That was no mere proclamation that I think Jesus might be the Messiah. This is divine revelation to John, the same divine revelation that sent John to go out and preach repentance, to go out and baptize with water for repentance to the people, to turn them back to God that they might be ready when the chosen one came. This was a man who then had that testified to that it was Christ, that Christ was not only the one who was to come after him, but Christ was the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, and that he in fact was the Son of God. 
John had every reason to know exactly who Jesus was. He had every reason to be confident and to believe. So we must ask, if John had received such divine confirmation from God that Jesus was the chosen Messiah, how could he later have any doubts? And why would he have needed to send his disciples to Jesus to ask him if he really was the one or if they were still to wait? What made him think that maybe he had been wrong? I can think of a few reasons for John's doubt at this point, and all of them really stem back to one reality, that Jesus, the Messiah, did not meet the expectations that John had for the coming Messiah. Jesus didn't appear to be pious enough to be the Messiah. The promised judgment of the wicked that John had promised and proclaimed that Jesus had carried the message of when he started in his public ministry, that judgment of the wicked was nowhere to be seen. And it simply would not have seemed possible that the chosen Messiah of God, the great and glorious Son of God, would allow his forerunner, his heralds, to rot and die in the jail of a wicked ruler. Well, the first reason I gave for John's doubt was that Jesus didn't appear to be pious enough to be the Messiah. Of course, that sounds almost ridiculous to say. Yet we see that concern voiced through John's disciples as they witnessed Christ and his disciples. That they were bothered, they were concerned with their lack of piety, their lack of religious devotion and display. In fact, the picture that we are given at this point is that the disciples of John would have had more in common with the disciples of the Pharisees than the disciples of Christ. Their their manner of life and, and devotion and behavior would have been much more in line with the Pharisees than Jesus' disciples. John and his disciples kept themselves distinct from sinners, like the Pharisees. Like the Pharisees, they regularly fasted and gave themselves to extended times of prayer. And yet, instead of exceeding everyone else in terms of their religious devotion, as it was then understood, instead Jesus rebuked and condemned the religion of the Pharisees. He condemned the zeal of the Pharisees. That apparently did not sit easily with John's disciples and very likely would not have sat easy with John himself. It wouldn't have been in line with what they would have expected from the Messiah. The second likely reason that John doubted was that the promised and expected judgment of the wicked that was supposed to follow the arrival of the Messiah was missing. The glory, the majesty, and the power 
that was supposed to follow the arrival of, the, of God on this earth, the establishment of God's kingdom on this world, and its victory over all of its enemies, that was nowhere to be seen. Remember, from the very beginning of his ministry, John had proclaimed that judgment was at hand. That because the kingdom was near, they needed, people needed to repent, and they needed to repent now because judgment was at hand. Judgment was close. It is so close. You needed to repent and turn from your sin while God will still hear and turn to you in favor. The axe was already at the root of the tree. The winnowing fork was in hand to separate and to bring into safety the wheat and to gather the chaff to be burned. When Jesus continued the message that John had started, he continued in a very similar way. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven in Christ was there. Judgment was soon to follow. But where was the judgment that was promised? God's king and his kingdom was supposed to bring salvation to the faithful and judgment to the wicked. The hope of the downtrodden and the warning to the oppressor were two sides of the same coin. You weren't supposed to be able to have one without the other. And yet what did John see? What did John's disciples report back to him? To be sure, yes, there had been much in the way of lifting up those who were poor in spirit and down. Jesus had greatly relieved the suffering of the people. He had taught the people to look to God. He had healed all manners of sickness, disease, deformity, and oppression. And yet, with all of that mercy for the lowly, the judgment of the wicked remained but a warning, remained but a hope in the distance. Well, if that makes John sound a little overzealous for the destruction of the wicked, then perhaps you spend too much time reading the message of our culture, reading and, and thinking about the need for acceptance and tolerance and inclusion. Perhaps you are too much influenced by our culture than you are by Scripture. Perhaps you need to spend more time in the Psalms. Scripture is full of the pleas of the faithful longing for the destruction of the wicked. And rather than thinking that the biblical saints, including John, were bloodthirsty as they called out to God and as they were, were shocked and scandalized by the lack of justice, by the lack of judgment on the wicked, perhaps we should consider that maybe they had something in better perspective than we do. Perhaps we're the one whose vision is distorted. Perhaps we're the ones who are out of balance. Do we think that we are more merciful than God? Do we think that we have a greater love for sinners than God? 
or than the saints that have gone before us? Or perhaps we have become numb to the sinfulness of sin. Perhaps we have become numb to the offense of sin's stain in the world. So yes, while it is good and honorable and righteous to desire the salvation of individual sinners, to preach the gospel to all men that all might respond with faith and repentance, it is also good to desire the destruction of the wicked as a category. While we do desire everyone to believe, to honor God as God, we should also desire that everyone who hates what God loves and who loves what God hates, that everyone who does that would be judged. We should desire the defeat of all of God's enemies. We should desire the obliteration of wickedness from the face of the earth. I'm convinced the reason that that kind of language can often make us uncomfortable has much more to do with our comfortability with sin and rebellion against God than it does with our tender and merciful hearts to save the lost. Beloved, do not make enemies of close friends. There is no conflict between having compassion on those who are enslaved to sin and yet warring with all of our might and praying with all of our zeal that we might see the destruction of God's every enemy, of every evil power and stronghold. As John was certainly zealous against wickedness in his day. And he wasn't quiet about it. John didn't simply exercise his religion where it was safe. He didn't simply proclaim the message of repentance to those who already believed and were going to give him a hearty amen. He called out even the rulers of the land to repent of specific sins that they were committing. As a result, John was thrown into prison, never to be free again. And so we get to the circumstance that would certainly have contributed to John's doubting at this time in his life. John had boldly proclaimed the nearness of the judgment for the wicked. He had carried that message to everyone in the land, and then nothing. Instead of the wicked receiving what they were owed, what was supposed to follow the Messiah of God coming to his people, what John and Jesus had already said the wicked would receive, things continued on pretty much as they had. Or, in the case of John, things got worse. the herald and the forerunner of God's Messiah, the one came to prepare the way for the kingdom of heaven on this earth, sat in a prison cell under the command of a weak and wicked ruler, just waiting to die. The great Messiah, this greater one who would come after him that John had so boldly proclaimed 
had done nothing to help him. The glory and the power that was supposed to accompany his arrival was nowhere to be seen. And the vindication of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked, they remain but a distant threat or hope. And so, John's confidence was shaken. Well, Jesus' response should give us a good example to follow when we see a believer struggling with doubt. While there was some rebuke, and we'll look in a little bit that there is some rebuke in his response, there was also patience and kindness. John was not rejected by Jesus because of his, his momentary weakness or his season of doubt. Instead, Jesus gave him what he would need to be strengthened and to stand. Lord willing, we will get there next week in the following verses. But as just a means of preview, John the Baptist holds a unique position in redemptive history. John is at the same time said to be the greatest of any man born of a woman, and yet be to be inferior, to be less than the least within the kingdom of heaven. He is the forerunner of the Messiah, preparing the way for God's anointed one, yet he is not reckoned as the Messiah's disciple, or really even as a citizen of the kingdom. In John, we have the last true Old Testament prophets. He had the privilege of preparing the way for and witnessing the end of the age and the beginnings of something that his predecessors had revealed only in types and shadows. So no, Jesus didn't harshly rebuke John for his doubts as he sat in Herod's prison. Nor did he tell John's disciples that John had already been given enough that what he already had was adequate to sustain him and he shouldn't ask for anything more. And Jesus did not tell John to simply look within himself and remember the confidence that he had once known, to remember the strength of his previous faith. And that, that memory of belief should sustain him something akin to what many of us have heard at different times come from the mouths of preachers when they doubted their faith. Just, just remember that one time you believed and be confident. No. Jesus pointed John to something that he could witness, something that John could hear testimony of, something that John could take hold of here and now. That Jesus, according to Old Testament expectation, was fulfilling the promise of the Messiah. John just needed to let go of his preconception of how that was supposed to look. 
Verses 4 and 5, Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. We had said John had doubts because Jesus didn't appear to be living up to his expectations of what the Messiah would do and cause to come about. Jesus responded to those doubts by showing that he was exactly what the Old Testament had promised and looked to. And he alluded directly to some of those promises. We turn back to Isaiah, we're first going to be in chapter 29. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then Isaiah. If you get to Jeremiah, you have gone too far. Isaiah 29. And we'll be in a couple more passages in Isaiah, so keep that relative location open. Isaiah 29, 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book. Out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Or look a few chapters later to Isaiah 35, 3 through 6. There we read, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He will, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So is Jesus the one that Israel was longing for and that John's disciples should have been expecting? John's disciples could give witness that he was. They, they could be witness to the fact that the blind received their sight, 927 through 31. The deaf were able to hear, 932 and 33. And even a paralyzed man was able to get up to take his mat and walk home, 9, 2 through 8. Even though this discussion is, is as I said at the beginning, separated from the earlier miracles, Matthew placed them in close enough proximity in his gospel so that when the reader was seeing this evidence that Jesus gave that he was the Messiah, they could recall in their minds all these things had taken place. Matthew even grouped those miracles together to make it painfully obvious that the kingdom of God had arrived the blind could see, the deaf could hear, the lame could walk, the mute could speak. As Jesus showed his power over sickness, disease, deformity, evil spirits, and even death. And in that showing his absolute authority over nature and over the spirits, and over the effects of the curse, 
he was also giving the evidence to back up the claims of his followers that he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. He was the long-expected King. The kingdom of God had finally come to this earth. And every authoritative teaching that Christ gave and every miraculous healing he performed proved it. Yet Jesus also listed miracles that were not even anticipated by the prophets in the Old Testament. Lepers were cleansed and the dead raised to life. Well, the opening of eyes and ears reveals clearly the beauty of God's creation, where the beauty of God's creation being fixed, the curse of man that brought about those kind of deformities, that kind of sickness and trial that, that the curse could be undone. That's amazing in its own right. That God would remove the barriers that would prevent men from clearly seeing and hearing and knowing that God had come to the earth, that Jesus was the Messiah of God, from understanding who God was and what God desired from them. How much more so to the miracles of curing leprosy and raising the dead to life. Leprosy was not only something that was thought uncurable in that day, it was a disease that carried great stigma. The fear of the spread of leprosy made anybody who was affected by it a, a danger to the whole of society. They were unclean, they were cast out. Biblical law even demanded that those who had leprosy had to remain outside of the camp. They had to remain distant and separate and to warn anybody that would come near them that they were unclean lest they infect others. And that is how God says that we deal with infection. That is how God says we deal with disease. You quarantine the sick to protect the healthy. It is the folly of man that would quarantine the healthy to protect the sick. Jesus revealed the mission of the Messiah to go even beyond the expectation that had been given before. He could and he would heal those things that were beyond the hopes of men. And beyond that, the Messiah could and would metaphorically bring the dead back to life as those who were cast out were able to come back. Those who had been severed from society could be brought back in. And he would also literally bring the dead back to life, physically and spiritually. We know from the New Testament authors that this imagery also clearly presents the wonder of the gospel that Christ came to restore to life those who were dead in their sins. We know that each new believer who professes faith in Christ is one who has been raised from the dead. That miracle after miracle, as the gospel goes forth and people repent and believe, we have evidence after evidence of the proof of the victory of Christ and the power of the gospel. So while John's and, and many in Israel's 
expectations of the, what the Messiah would bring caused them to take offense at him, caused them to doubt. Israel's vision for the Messiah was in fact too small for what Christ came to this earth to do. Well, Jesus gave John's disciples one more bit of evidence that he was, in fact, the one that John was expecting. The poor have the good news preached to them. As we have said before, the expectation was that the arrival of God's anointed one, the faithful would be lifted up and the haughty would be brought down. The image of God's faithful throughout much of the Old Testament, especially those portions where his people were crying out in the most earnest for his salvation, is that God's people were poor, helpless, downtrodden, oppressed, vulnerable to the attacks of the wicked. Much like we saw in the Beatitudes, the gospel, even as it had been preached in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, gave special attention to those who were poor, and suffering, because they were the ones who most clearly understood their need for salvation. They were the ones whose eyes were most fixed on the promises of God and knew that he was their only hope. They were the ones who tended to be the most ready to admit their failures, to forsake their trusting in self, and to throw themselves at the mercy of God. The coming of God to this earth was the hope of the righteous who mourned. Turn with me to Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And so to John's doubts, to, to strengthen John's faith, Jesus graciously pointed back to his body of work. He pointed back to what John didn't clearly understand and see. That his ministry, the works he had performed, the words that he had spoken were the proof that the Messiah had indeed arrived. And contrary to what many of the Jews of that day believed when they saw what Jesus said and did, his coming had been precisely as it had been promised it would be. Well, after giving John's disciples a response that no doubt would have shown John that his doubts were unfounded, that they were unnecessary, Jesus continued with a measure of rebuke. In verse 6, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That word that is translated here as offended literally means cause to sin or fall or stumble. Jesus was saying that blessed is the one who does not see my life and my ministry and find in it cause to stumble or falter 
or fall into sin. To John, it was as if Jesus were saying, blessed is the one who doesn't doubt as John had done. Of course, we must see that the coming of the chosen one of God was always going to be an offense to unfaithful Israel. It was prophesied that Christ would be a rock of stumbling in Isaiah 8, 14 and 15, that he would be a trap and a snare, that many would fall and stumble and be broken. Well, this rebuke that Jesus offers to being offended by him is a stronger rebuke than needing, simply needing evidence to believe. We saw that with Thomas in John 20. There, Thomas had missed out on the first time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples. And later on, he heard the witness of testimony of the other disciples that they had seen Jesus. They had been able to, to hold him, to touch him, to see him. And yet Thomas said that he would not believe based on their testimony. He had to see Jesus for himself if he was going to believe. He didn't demand more evidence than the other disciples were given. He demanded the same. And Jesus, when he came to them again later and gave Thomas what he needed to believe, gave him the gentle rebuke, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. But in the case of John, it isn't merely that John needed more evidence, that he, he needed the same kind of evidence that other people had about Jesus to believe. John was given the same evidence. John was given more evidence even, that he was divinely shown that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And yet, when he saw the ministry and heard of the life of Jesus, he took offense and he stumbled. What he saw wasn't what he was expecting, and it made him doubt. In his tunnel vision, he became blind to the beauty of the arrival of the Messiah, what it truly meant as it unfolded in God's timing, in God's way, and he needed an extra reassurance to reorient his vision back to what God was doing. And to the other reason for John's doubt, that the wicked, like this adulterous ruler who had him, held him in prison in chains, that the wicked were escaping the judgment that they had been promised, Jesus subtly reminded him through those allusions to the passages in Isaiah that judgment was still coming. If you notice in those passages in Isaiah, as there was comfort that was spoken to those who were downtrodden and lowly, the poor or the lame, there was warnings of judgments to the oppressor and to the wicked in each one of them. The judgment of the wicked would not come in time to save John. But just as Jesus had promised, that wicked generation did not escape the wrath of God. 
In his patience and mercy, God would give Israel, that nation that had strayed so far from her purpose, he would give that nation an entire generation that all who were hardened would have a generation to add to their sin by refusing the message of the Savior, all so that each and every one of the remnant of the faithful people of God would be able to hear the gospel, would be able to experience the miracle of the new birth, would be able to turn from their sin, believe, and be saved. And once that had happened, the hammer indeed did fall, yet not one whom the Father had given to the Son would perish. John didn't end his ministry as the forerunner of the Messiah as he expected he would. John didn't get to sit at the table and next to the king and feast his victory, the holy champion of Israel. John didn't get to know the place of honor that a herald of a great king should expect to be able to be held in. Instead, John got to go before his Savior yet again and suffer and die at the hands of wicked men. Beloved, does it encourage you that the great John the Baptist, that fiery wild man out of the wilderness, that threw all of Israel into an uproar, does it, does it encourage you that that man struggled with doubts about Jesus. Even after he had seen him with his own eyes, even after he had seen the Spirit of God descend upon him like a dove, and he had heard the voice from heaven echoing God's favor and pleasure in his Son. John the Baptist had doubts. Just like Abraham had doubts and laughed when he heard about what God was going to do for him. Just like Isaac and Jacob in their terms at times struggled with believing that God was going to bring about all that he had promised to them and to their fathers. Just like Moses struggled. Just like David wept often throughout the Psalms in fear and confusion about why the wicked were seeming to prosper and why the righteous were so downtrodden, why the righteous were oppressed and poor and needy and the wicked were flourishing. Dear doubting believer, you are not the first Christian to have times of doubts. Beloved of Christ, you are not the first person to struggle sometimes to believe deep down in your heart that all of God's promises are indeed yes and amen. Our confession even acknowledges the struggle that many Christians have with doubt. As we read just a number of weeks ago, chapter 14, paragraph 3, this faith, talking of saving faith, may exist in varying degrees so that it may either be weak or strong. Yet even in its weakest form, it is different in kind or nature, like all other saving graces, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Therefore, faith may often be attacked and weakened, but it gains the victory. 
It matures in many to the point that they attain full assurance through Christ, who is both the founder and perfecter of our faith. Dear Christians, struggling with plaguing doubts about Christ, about his word, about the assurance of our salvation, that's bad enough. That is oppressive and weighty enough. Do not add to that doubt the extra layer that believing the fact that you have doubt causes you even more doubt. Don't let your doubt extend and flourish and grow into the kind of monster that'll destroy you. John the Baptist had doubts about Christ. His disciples had times of doubts about Christ. Many of the fathers of our faith throughout scripture and through history have had times where they had doubts about the promises of God. Assurance of Christ and our salvation is a beautiful gift of God. It is one that is available to us through the promises of his word and through the working of his spirit within. Yet it is one, a gift that we are often very long in receiving. It is often a gift that only comes after much trial and study and prayer. After many seasons of doubt. So, beloved, I would offer you the comfort that it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of the one in whom you have placed your faith who saves you. It is not your hold of Christ that secures your place in him. It is his hold of you. It is the Father's hold of you that secures your place in Christ. Don't let your expectation of the way that you think things should look in this world or the way that you thought your life was supposed to unfold, don't let that be a barrier to your confidence in Christ. Don't let that keep you from being assured of his love, of his salvation. Do not take offense on his account because of how he has written the pages of history or how he has written the story of your life or how his kingdom has advanced on this earth. Today may seem harder than yesterday. A thousand todays may seem to continue in a downward spiral, the bottom of which we have no sight of. And yet that does not mean that the promises of God have failed or that Christ's kingdom is not here in power, advancing all the while you struggle. Remember that the greatest advances and victories of Christ's kingdom have often come through what looked like to the world was defeat. This has been true in the lives of individual believers, and this has been true as the church as a whole. 
We could not imagine a greater example of that truth than the cross itself. That apparent defeat of the upstart Messiah that actually brought about his greatest victory. We have seen that pattern play itself out many times among God's people. God turns loss into gain. God turns defeat into victory. He turns death into life. Great wickedness remained in the land even as Jesus pointed to his miracles as proof that the kingdom of God had arrived. And bit by bit, the curse was overturned. Individual by individual, brokenness was restored, chaos put to order. Think of the church. What started off as 12 soon became hundreds, then thousands. The empire that persecuted the church so much in her early days turned into the great vehicle for evangelism and the explosion of the gospel into the known world. Century by century, the church grew and light shone where there had only been darkness before. And within about a thousand years, the wickedness of pagan idolatry had been driven off of entire continents. Yes, beloved, sometimes things have gotten darker. Sometimes it seems like the wicked are on the rise and God's faithful are on retreat. Sometimes it seems as if God's kingdom is not really even here or that it's been defeated. Sometimes that makes it hard to remain our confidence that Christ will do everything he has promised to do. And yet, beloved of Christ, be reminded that it is in apparent defeat that God so often works his greatest victories. Your life may be in chaos. You may struggle to think how the things that you are facing can ever be turned around, that there can ever be a right and good and proper purpose on the other side. You may not know how tomorrow can possibly be better than today. The wicked may seem like they will always prosper. And it may seem like the gospel will never again have the power that we heard of in the early church. Or that we'll never again see the rapid spread of the gospel throughout the world as people bend their knee to Christ. Beloved, we must not be surprised when these things take place. We must not let ourselves become offended by Christ because he isn't working in the world around us the way that we think he should be. We must not fall into sin and doubt because his plan for victory involves our temporary struggles or even if it means our earthly defeat. Struggling believer, take heart. Christ is king. He is alive. He is sovereign. He is not asleep at the will, at the wheel. And he is winning. His kingdom is advancing. His purposes will ripen fast. No matter what the world may tell us, we are on the winning side and we cannot lose in Christ no matter what happens around us.
And beloved, when doubt does grab a hold of you, remember that it is he who holds you, not you who must maintain your hold on him. Remember that it is his faithfulness, not ours, that is our security and our hope. And so resist the urge to judge our Lord through the unfocused lenses of this world. See him through the clear lens of the gospel and remember that even in death, there is victory. What the world may proclaim as negligence or powerlessness against sin and wickedness, we know to be the patience and long-suffering mercy of our God, long enduring the foolishness of men to bring about his perfect plan, to bring about the redemption of each and every one for whom Christ died. And to borrow an image from Narnia and Minnesota in February, don't lose heart because it seems that the winter will have no end. Aslan is on the move and spring is coming. Father, we are thankful that even the giants of our faith struggled Let that not be something that throws us into depression because someone greater than us struggled, but let that be freeing to us, Lord, that all men are weak, frail, that even the greatest of us was dependent on the mercy of God and the reassuring kindness of our Lord. Father, may you in kindness overcome our doubts, overcome our insecurities, overcome our fears. When we stumble, even when we stumble because we are so uncertain about what is taking place or we are, are so confused about why things look the way they do and we think they should be different if Christ truly was on his throne, don't let us stumble because of that. Don't let us take offense as though somehow our Lord and King was not what he ought to be. Give us a heavenly perspective to see the beauty and the wonder of what our Lord is doing, to recognize the mercy and grace that surrounds so many of the things that we are impatient for. That our King is not slow to bring about what he has promised, but he is long-suffering. John might not have seen the judgment of the wicked that, that he was promised to see, that was promised for the nation, because Christ was merciful and long-suffering, yet the wicked did not escape the day of judgment nor will the wicked escape judgment for sin unless they bend the knee, repent of their sin, and trust in the Lord.
Father, we give you all the glory and honor and praise for you are worthy and you know so much better than we do. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.